0: Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. You ready to answer a bunch of questions? Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Raise your hand. We're going to start out with a little uh, point of, yeah, there you go. Thank you. I, I love the participation, but you didn't let me finish. But I love it. Let's practice one more time. Raise your hand again. I hope to see that during the rest of the lesson. I love it. So raise your hand if you know how to operate a light switch. Okay, good, good, good. Because I have a two-year-old that's about this tall and he knows how to operate a light switch. He just can't reach them. Um, I'm happy to see so many hands were raised. I trust that those of us that know how to operate a light switch have come across one of the two situations that I'm about to mention, okay? See if you can relate. Situation number one, it is evening time. The sun has set, you're getting ready to go to bed you walk over to the light switch, and you turn off the light. And in those moments after having turned off the light, you begin to wonder to yourself how many furniture corners are going to impale you? If you have little siblings, how many Legos and how many Hot Wheels are going to embed themselves into the bottom of your feet? How many of your toes you're going to break from the light switch to your bed, because in the brief moments after you turn off the light, you can see absolutely nothing, right? Others of us uh, who, who wake up in the morning when it's still dark and go to turn on the light for the first time are, are blinded for a moment and then spend the rest of the morning until about 11 a.m. in a condition that I call the squints. Kind of looks like this. I tell myself whenever I'm teaching that you're not really asleep, that you're just, you're just still squinting, still adjusting to, to the light. You see, guys, a room is never darker than whenever you first turn off the light. And it is never brighter than whenever you first turn it on. Light is never brighter than what is con- con- contrasted with, with utter darkness. John 1, 4 says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Alejandro was was talking about how we've seen the events leading up to to the crucifixion, and never did the light of Jesus, his perfect life, his innocence, his righteousness, his perfection, his justice, appear so bright as when it stood in contrast with the wickedness, with the evil of people, right? And never did the evil of people, the darkness of men, their willful ignorance, their depravity, their hatred, their envy, their twisted sense of justice appear so dark as when it stood in contrast with the light of Jesus. The the moments leading up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself present for us the most distinct, the most stark contrast between light and darkness, between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness in the entire Bible. Bible. It is as though, guys, these contrasting components that unfold at the very climax of redemptive history are making it crystal clear why we need a Savior, why the world needed a Savior. So it's my prayer as we study this passage, as we unpack uh, Matthew 27, that we'll all be reminded uh, of this great need, not just of the people of this time, but for us today. And so before we dive into our text this morning, I think it's important for us to review some of the events leading up to this point, some of the context. If you remember, Jesus was arrested, right? Well, what happened after Jesus was arrested? Do you remember? Yes. That's right. He was tried before the council and the high priest. So he's tried before the high priest. And and at some point he he agrees with his accusers, right? That, That he is the Christ. He says, you have said so. You have said so. And then he, he goes on to make a series of, of claims by identifying himself with the figure in Daniel chapter seven. He, he, he says, um, hey, the, the guy in Daniel chapter seven, he quotes from there, that's me. I, I am the son of man. I, I am the one upon whom dominion and glory are to be ascribed. I am the one whom all the peoples will serve. I am the one who will have an everlasting dominion. I am the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed and so what happens during that trial people get really angry right and it's no question that they do because he just declared himself to be god right this is blasphemy to these jewish leaders and so he is condemned he is spat on he's beaten he is mocked but oddly enough he is not killed on the spot why not why is he not killed on the spot do you remember yes Exactly. He, he just said because the Romans are the only ones that actually had jurisdiction to kill people. John 18.31, if we skip ahead just for a moment, tells us that at one point during Jesus' trial, the, the Roman governor says to these, these people that are bringing him before Rome with, with charges, take him, take Jesus yourselves and judge him according to your law. And what, what do the Jews say back to him? They say, we are not permitted to put anybody to death, just like our friend just shared. He, he's indicating that only Rome was legally able to put people to death, which is why, what happens next? What happens the next morning? You remember what Alejandro talked to you about earlier this week? What happens the next morning? Yes? Uh, Jesus goes exactly, he's taken before Pilate, the Roman governor. He's examined according to the charges brought against him. But the, but the Jews were pretty smart. They knew that although Jesus' claim to be God was considered blasphemy to them, Rome didn't really care about Jewish theology. For Rome to put someone to death, the accused person needed to actually do something deserving of death according to Roman law. So these evil Jewish leaders, and maybe we didn't unpack this as as much uh, in Matthew, but but certainly it's evident in the book of Luke, these evil Jewish leaders are careful to fabricate accusations against Jesus that frame him as a threat to the Roman government. If we can convince the Roman government that this guy is a threat, maybe they'll put him to death for us. And so they make the following claims before Pilate. Hey, Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation. Pilate, he's forbidding his followers to pay taxes to Caesar. Pilate, he stirs up the people. Pilate, this guy is saying that he is king. But Pilate turns out to be discerning enough to realize that Jesus was innocent. Luke 23, 4 says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in this man. However, instead of having the guts to declare Jesus innocent, what does Pilate do? Not wanting to upset the people, he sends Jesus to Herod. He's just passing Jesus along. He doesn't want to make the decision, so he passes him to somebody else. Jesus goes and is tried before Herod, and his trial before Herod, guys, is hardly a trial. He is... Uh, examined, he is mocked, and then he is sent right back to Pilate. And that's where we are today. Pilate receives Jesus back and and we see this scene unfold. So, So let's look at our verse or our text for today, Matthew 27. Matthew 27 verse 15. So make sure you flip there so that you can read along as we read the passage, obviously pay attention to what, what is going on, but also pay attention to, to the key players in the text. I, I put a little box in your notes, uh, that little outline that I passed around, where you can write down sort of who, who the key players in the text are, and if you don't get them, we'll highlight them later. So verse 15 says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept on shouting all the more saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. In our text for today, Matthew twenty-seven, fifteen to 26, we're going to see three scenes that illustrate the righteousness of Christ and the wickedness of man. And you'll see them in your outline. Scene number one, what does your outline say? Scene number one is? The criminal traded, very good. Scene number two? Yes, go ahead. Crowds persuaded. Scene number three? Yes. The Christ condemned. So let's look at scene number one the criminal traded. Look down at your Bibles at verse 15. Verse 15 says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the prisoners any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So so notice how the text begins. The text begins with, now at the feast. What what feast is this in reference to? Yes. The Passover Passover feast, exactly. Having occupied um, Israel for some time, there's no question. There's no question as to whether the the Roman government was aware of Jewish tradition. They knew what the Passover was. And given the natural friction between the Roman government and the Jews, the releasing of one prisoner was an effort to keep the Jews happy. It it was an acknowledgement of their feast, of their Passover. It was an acknowledgement of of the celebration they had. It was like a diplomatic pressure valve that if they released it, maybe the, the Jews wouldn't revolt. They thought that maybe if we throw the Jews a bone every once in a while, uh, they won't rise up against us and threaten our government. Listen to where the text goes next. So now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. Then verse 16, at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. What stands out to you as we jump from verse 15 to 16? The text says, the Jews could choose to release any one prisoner whom they wanted, any one prisoner whom they wanted. We, we might think that it may have been a priority for the Jews to release first those who maybe were unjustly imprisoned or those who might have been imprisoned in, in for upholding Jewish law in contradiction to the Roman government. Maybe it would have been a priority for them to seek the release of those who would have added certain civic or economic or political or religious value to the community. But, but who does verse 16 draw our attention to? Yes. Anybody? You can shout it out. Barabbas. Barabbas. That's right. So who is Barabbas? How, how is he described in verse 16? Go ahead. You can, you can just say it. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. A notorious criminal. What does it mean to be Notorious. Notorious. What's that? Well-known in a bad way. Well-known in a bad way, exactly. And pay close attention how the other gospels describe this Barabbas character. Mark fifteen seven calls him an insurrectionist who committed murder. What is an insurrectionist? Someone who works to overthrow the government, Someone who works to overthrow the government. exactly. He's a rebel, right? A rebel. So Mark 15, an insurrectionist who committed murder. John 18 says he is a robber. Luke 23, 19 calls him again an insurrectionist and a murderer. Luke 23, 25 again, an insurrectionist and a murderer. I don't know about you, but if I had to choose one bad guy to release from prison, Barabbas would not be my first pick. So so what's going on here? What's going on here? The, the author, guys, is giving us insight into the t- decision-making of Governor Pilate. We've already established that Pilate was a coward. He, he knows that Jesus is innocent, but he doesn't have the spine to acquit him in front of all of the people out of fear that these Jewish leaders are going to escalate the matter and make him look bad in front of his boss, in front of the Roman government. He's already tried to convince the Jews of Jesus' I- innocence, right, like we saw earlier, like you saw with Alejandro, Um, did that work? Was he able to convince them? No, that they continued insisting. Then he tried to pass the decision off to Herod. Did that work? No, what did Herod do? He sent him right back. He sent him right back. So so what was this cowardly governor to do? He he didn't wanna release Jesus and, and risk the potential of inciting a riot of losing control, upsetting his boss, losing his job, and maybe even his life. He didn't want to put Jesus to death because even his unbelieving, corrupt heart still had an issue with condemning an innocent man. So what is he gonna do? As he considered that the custom of releasing one prisoner to the Jews during the Passover, he saw a perfect opportunity. He saw a perfect opportunity to get what he wanted. He he devised a way of satisfying the Jewish leaders while at the same time preserving the life of this innocent man. He would set two options before the people. Jesus the innocent or Barabbas the notorious. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 says, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. So Pilate, having devised his plan, sets forth his bargain, his trade. Remember, at the Feast of the Governor, the Governor was accustomed to, to I'm sorry, at the Feast, not the Feast of the Governor, the Governor was accustomed to releasing for the people anyone prisoner whom they wanted. So, so evidently, there were usually no restrictions. There were no restrictions placed on this Jewish choice. They could pick anyone But Pilate doesn't give them an open-ended question, right? He restricts their options. The only possible answers are A, Barabbas, or B, Jesus. He's presenting the Jewish leaders with what seems like a simple decision. Who do you want to go free, the bad guy or the good guy? And as if the decision was not already a slam dunk, he gives them a big hint. He gives them a big hint as to who they should choose. What's that big hint that he gives them? What little detail does Pilate throw into his question? Yes. Exactly, he says, Jesus, who is called Christ. Very good, why does he say this? Why do you think Pilate is is saying this? Why does he throw that in there? How might identifying Jesus as the one who is called the Christ result in Jesus' release? I think he was trying to, yes, go ahead. Exactly, if you didn't hear that, she said because the Jews had always talked about the Christ and looked for him and I think that's exactly right. If we, if we consider our key players that I told you to look for before, that the key players here are, are Pilate, right in this text, they're Jesus, Pilate, Jesus, Barabbas, and then the two that, that I want you to look at right now with me that you can write down as well are, are the Jewish leaders, but then also the crowds. Pilate knew he wouldn't be able to convince these these angry, hateful Jewish leaders to release Jesus, but he thought, maybe if I can remind the crowds of what our friend just shared here, that they knew who this Jesus was. If he could encourage some of the Christ sympathizers to speak up, to come to Jesus' defense, maybe he could solve his issue. And although the Jewish leaders insisted on condemning Jesus, he thought there must be at least a couple people in the crowd who are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. If he could just remind them of this, maybe he could turn down the volume of those shouting for Jesus' death and turn up the volume of those that may come to his defense. After all, verse 18 says, Because of what they handed him over? Because of what does it say? Because of envy. Because of envy, they handed him over. The Jewish leaders fiercely envied Christ. They envied the authority with which he spoke. They envied his wisdom. They envied his popularity. They envied his power. They envied his miracles. They envied his righteousness. But surely, Pilate thought, their envy is not greater than their sense of justice. They won't trade this wicked man for the righteous. Surely, he thought, the voice of the envious would not be louder than the voice of the faithful, of those that would come to Jesus's defense. They're not going to trade a criminal for their Christ. So Pilate's plan was, was foolproof, right? The question that he posed was carefully crafted. The trade he proposed left his audience with only one logical, ethical response. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? So, so far we've looked at scene number one. What was scene number one called? What was scene number one called? Go ahead, yell it out. The criminal traded, very good. Where we saw Pilate, this cowardly governor, running out of options. He's trying to squirm out from under the conviction of killing an innocent guy and the pressure of losing control. And so he appeals to Jesus' innocence in contrast to Barabbas, and then he appeals to Jesus' identification as the Christ to persuade people to release him. After all, the only way he can avoid a riot is to convince the Jews to acquit him themselves. So he's posed this question, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? How, how would the audience respond? So let's look at C number two now. What's C number two called? Yes. The crowds. the crowds persuaded. So look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So so remember the, the scene. Pilate is trying to manage chaos. This Jesus guy is frustratingly innocent. If Jesus could just say one thing deserving condemnation according to Roman law, Pilate would pounce on the opportunity. He's trying to think quickly of a solution that would satisfy the Jews and not pose trouble for Rome. He couldn't stomach slaughtering an innocent guy he was afraid that his decision would ruin his political career he could hardly hear his own thoughts over people shouting at him but somehow he engineers a solution he has a brilliant idea Jesus for Barabbas he poses a question to the crowd and before he can get an answer what happens he's interrupted he's interrupted as if the demands of the crowd and the demands of his conscience weren't enough all of a sudden a messenger comes with demands from his wife Can you imagine a a governor or a senator or a president being interrupted by a message from his wife while delivering an address or trying to quiet an angry mob? Pilate's wife seems to be so concerned about this righteous man that she finds it absolutely necessary to cut in while her husband is dealing with a moral and political nightmare. In a panic, she sends him a message, and what does she tell him? What does she tell him? Go ahead. Um, have nothing to do with that man for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Yeah, she, she warns him, right? It's a warning. I have nothing to do with Jesus. Have nothing to do with his condemnation, with his execution. Recuse yourself. Walk away. She seems to have had some sort of dream, right, in the piece that you just read. And in her panic, she, 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 ran, she ran to her husband. She ran to, to warn him. We don't know what the content of the dream was. But she did know something about Jesus. What did she know about Jesus? Why does Pilate's wife implore him to have nothing to do with this Jesus? Yes. He's a righteous man. He is a righteous man. See, guys, I think that it says something about human sinfulness. I think it says something about human sinfulness and particularly about the sinfulness and the depravity of the Jews, the people of God, the people whom God chose, delivered, loved, blessed, covenanted with, that they, the Jews, would more readily condemn Jesus than a Gentile governor and his wife. This Gentile governor has been trying to convince them of Jesus' innocence, and now his wife is coming into the scene, all the while God's people are shouting what? Away with Jesus, away with Jesus. We have no idea uh, what Mrs. Pilate's standard of righteousness was, but, but it certainly wasn't Scripture but she was more sensitive to her unbelieving sense of right and wrong than the Jews were of the law which God had revealed to them. At the same time, Pilate received this warning from his troubled wife, what was taking place among the crowd? Let's look at verse 20. Look down at verse 20 with me. Verse 20 says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. How does this conflict with Pilate's master plan? If you remember, by calling Jesus the Christ, he was trying to encourage the Christ sympathizers in the crowd to speak up, right, to come to Jesus's defense. Pilate thought, if I can just rally some support for this Jesus guy, he could encourage them to remember remember his miracles, his teaching, his following. Maybe I can save him. Clearly, that didn't work. Right, the the persuasion of the chief priests and the elders were more effective and convincing the crowd then Pilate's reminder of Jesus as the Christ but if you recall Pilate still had one more card to play what was that one last card he had the the mentioning of the Christ didn't work but what was he still thinking about Uh, handing him over to the Jews if we if we go back what were the two strategies that that Pilate used two strategies he used one was presenting before them a trade of two people who were the two people Barabbas and Jesus. And the other one was the mentioning of Jesus as the Christ. So clearly, mentioning Jesus as the Christ and getting the crowd to rally behind Christ didn't work, but this Barabbas guy was still in the picture. Barabbas the notorious, the robber, the murderer, the insurrectionist, or Jesus the innocent, the guiltless, the righteous. And what was their response? What does the text say? What do the people say? They say, who do they want? Barabbas, the chief priests, the elders, the crowd made their decision. And Pilate was out of options. He, he didn't imagine that he would find himself in this position. He, he pulled out all the stops he made every effort to in an act of cowardice and self-preservation, convinced the Jews to set him free. And it didn't work. And so in a last-ditch attempt to find some alternative to killing Jesus while at the same time keeping the crowds happy, what does he say? Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, crucify him. And he said, why, what what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. So what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ, Pilate asked. What is wrong with this question? What is wrong with this question? Who is sitting on the judgment seat? Pilate or the crowd? Pilate. He was the judge, he was the final decision maker, but he was also a coward. And so he defers to the people again to determine Jesus' fate. And what are the crowds again, what do they say? They say, crucify him. They get exactly what they wanted. They get to be the jury, they get to be the judge, and then they get Rome to be the executioner. But how does Pilate respond to them? He says, what evil has he done? What evil has he done? That the Gospels make it clear that Pilate had not made any findings of guilt. In fact, he had on more than one occasion talked about Jesus's innocence, and you guys are going to help me with that here in a second. I need some volunteers to look for some passages. Uh, Mark fifteen thirteen. Who else? Uh, Luke twenty three four. Who else? Luke twenty three fourteen, and Luke twenty three fifteen. I got one more. Luke twenty three, twenty two. I lied. I got one more. Uh, Luke, I'm sorry. John eighteen thirty eight. Okay. Is my Mark fifteen thirteen person ready? What does Mark fifteen thirteen say? They cried out again, crucify him. Is that, is that the end of Mark fifteen thirteen? How does Pilate respond? Uh, and Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? There we go. Pilate answers them. Was that in 14? Okay, thank you. Uh, he, he answers them, why, what evil has he done? So again, a declaration of innocence. Um, Luke 23, 4, who is my Luke 23, 4 person? Luke 23, 4? Yes. So why? What evil has he done? I find no guilt in this man. Who is my Luke twenty three fourteen person? Go ahead. Good. I have found no guilt in this man. And again, if if we were to continue reading, I think in that passage he says, and neither has Herod. Luke twenty three fifteen person. Where did you go? Luke 23:15. Did I assign that to somebody? Okay, let's go to Luke 23:22. Who did I assign that one to? Go ahead. He said to the, the time, Why would evil, no evil has he done? I find no guilt deserving death. And then John 1838. That's great. So the beginning of that says, I find no base for a charge against him, is what she just read. I find no guilt. And so the facts were clear, right? No testimony was provided to condemn Jesus. He was completely innocent and Pilate, What should he have done? He should have publicly acquitted him. He should have ordered that Jesus be released. But what did he do? He caved, right? He caved to the shouts of, of the crowd for Jesus to be crucified. Before we move on, I think it's important to remember how we got here, and Alejandro mentioned it in his prayer at the very beginning, but it may be important for us to to remember how how this is all happening. How did Jesus get handed over? How did he get delivered over? Was it the the hatred and the craftiness of the Jewish leaders? Is that why he got delivered over in the end? Was it the cowardliness of Governor Pilate that got him handed over in the very end? Was it the fickleness of the crowd? Acts two twenty two records Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter declares, "Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of Pilate, of the crowd, no, of of God." He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. The text makes clear that the decisive factor in delivering over Jesus was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God used hateful, cowardly, fickle people that we see in our text today to carry out his saving plan, to carry out his redemptive plan, but make no mistake, at no point did they make a decision that God had not ordained from eternity. So so far we saw scene number one. What was scene number one called? The criminal traded. What was scene number two called? Go ahead. The crowd's persuaded. We see Pilate's bargain fail. It falls on its face when the Jewish leaders persuade the crowd to put Jesus to death. And now we turn to scene number three, the Christ condemned. Look down at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. So Pilate's biggest fear starts to unfold. A riot begins. And what does he do? He takes water and does what? Washes his hands. Why does he wash his hands? What does this mean? Yes. There's to show he's not... Guilty. Some, some folks that I, was, that I was reading in preparation for this suggested that uh, he could have been hearkening back to a ritual that the Jews performed. Uh, when they were not able to make a determination of guilt when dealing with a murderer, the elders of the city would wash their hands. And this would signify the removal of innocent blood from their midst. The elders would declare that they themselves did not commit the murder. They hadn't witnessed it. They hadn't tried to cover it up. But whatever the case, I think the text suggests what you just said. If we keep reading along that same line, his washing of, of hands is connected with his claim of innocence, right? He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So, so this weak-kneed governor says, Fine, do what you want, but I will not be responsible for the death of this innocent man. So I, I'm not condoning this next thing as a good parenting strategy, but. I think we've all heard when children continue to insist on something that their parents have not allowed them to do, and their parents at the end get frustrated, and they eventually say, fine, do what you want. But if something happens, it's your responsibility. Do those children end up doing what they want? Not usually. It's usually the case that they want license to do wrong, but when they think about the possibility of having to take ownership for their actions, they kind of back off. Sadly, this is not what happens here. The crowd wanted both. They wanted license to do wrong and they welcomed ownership of the death of Jesus. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. It says, and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our our children. We should consider it a miracle of God's kindness and common grace that he didn't strike these people down where they stood. They so brazenly embraced responsibility for the death of God's Son. It's almost as though the Jews considered Jesus' condemnation a trophy, a badge of honor, something worth passing down to their children, to the next generation. His blood shall be on us and on our children. They're saying, kill him. We don't care. We'll take the blame. Interestingly, just as eagerly as they took ownership of, of the blood of Jesus in our text, they, they would soon refuse to be held accountable for his death. Acts 5.28 records when the apostles, the apostles are before the high priest. The, the high priest is telling them to stop talking about this Jesus guy. And he says to them, We gave you, apostles, strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled, with, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So later in the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders would have a case of selective amnesia. They would choose to forget the ownership they had taken of Jesus' blood when it no longer benefited them. They would go from kill him, we don't care. We'll take the blame to why are you blaming us for his death? Look at verse 26. Look down at verse 26. See what happens next. Then he released Barabbas for them but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This last verse is the culmination of everything that we've been looking at. John MacArthur writes something really helpful about um, everything that has happened. He says, despite the accusatory verbiage of that tragic night, it was not really Jesus who was on trial, but the rest of the world. The, the Jewish religionists condemned themselves as they viciously demanded Jesus' crucifixion, the fickle multitudes condemned, condemned themselves as they mindlessly went along with their leaders. Herod condemned himself as he mocked the king of kings. Pilate condemned himself as he willingly allowed an innocent man to be put to death, choosing the world above the Son of God. So let's look at the three components having to do with Jesus' condemnation in, in this last verse. We see first the, the righteous the guiltless, the Christ being scourged, lashed across the back repeatedly with a tool that was specially designed to do a disturbing amount of damage to a human being. Then we see Jesus being handed over to be nailed onto a cross and lifted up such that his already mangled body from the scourging would die a slow, unimaginably painful death. All the while, this Barabbas guy, the, the robber, the notorious, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the one for whom the scourging and the cross were originally intended, walks away a free man. Are you outraged by this? Does this bother you at all? It does? Why, why does it bother you? Why does it bother you? It's unjust. It's unjust. It's not fair, right? Right? As I was reading this, that was my first thought too, but but I think that it would be important for us to keep in mind this morning, if you are in Christ, that the release of Barabbas from the judgment of Rome should not be more scandalous to you than your release from the judgment of God. You stood condemned for rejecting God like the Jews, for loving the world more than God like Pilate, for being fickle and weak, and easily persuaded like the crowds, for having murderous, angry attitudes like Barabbas, and for many other sins. But it was your savior who was beaten, who was tortured beyond imagination, nailed to a wooden cross, and left to struggle for every breath that he took. And as he hung there on that cross, Christ the innocent, Christ the righteous, faced the terrible wrath of God for your sin in your place. And if, you, if you've placed your faith in Christ, have walked away free, just like Barabbas, unscathed, unharmed. Do you ever take this for granted, if, you, if you're honest with yourself? Do you ever take that for granted? When you read passages like the one we read today, are you more fixated on how unfair it was for Barabbas to escape condemnation from Rome? Or on how incredible it is that your Savior endured eternal punishment, died and rose again so that you could escape condemnation from God and have everlasting fellowship with him. In our text for today, Matthew 27, 15 to 26, we've seen three scenes, right? Three scenes that illustrate the righteousness of Christ and the wickedness of man. What are these three scenes? What is scene number one? Yes. The criminal traitor. What was scene number two? Yes. The and what was scene number three? That's right, so, so as we close, there's a couple of points of application I wanna leave you with. You I wanna write this down. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, do not take the cross for granted. The, the greatest antidote to spiritual apathy or spiritual entitlement is the word of God. Read it. Ask God to help you. What, what do the scriptures teach you about your spiritual condition? What does the Bible teach you about the person of Christ? What does it teach you about what he did on the cross? And how should those realities change your life? There are others of you in this room who've never, who've never decisively answered the question that Pilate posed to the crowd. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And until you answer that question, the judgment of God is going to be hanging above your head. If you run to Jesus this morning, admitting that you are full of sin, that you have absolutely nothing good to offer him, if you put your hope in Jesus, his righteousness and his innocence will be counted for you. And his sin-bearing death will be counted as your payment for sin. You will walk away today a free man, a free woman, from the power of sin and the judgment of God if you do this, guys, you won't be saved because you're a good kid. You won't be saved because you got a tingly feeling in your stomach during a sermon. You won't be saved because you're sitting in Sunday school this morning. You won't be saved because your sins are not as big as everyone else's. You will be saved because Jesus the righteous took your place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the text this morning. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus and how it jumps out of the pages of Scripture. Lord, to, to encourage us, to tell us about who Jesus is, but also to paint a stark contrast with how wicked we are and how much we need him and how much we need that righteousness to be counted to us so that we can love you and have fellowship with you. Lord, God, I pray that for those in this room that, that know you, that the, their acquittal from your judgment would seem all the sweeter this morning and for those that do not know you God that they would run to you God that they would be part of this beautiful exchange Lord that they would be washed clean of their sin by the blood of Jesus Lord help us to to be heralds of this message to the world to not be ashamed like Pilate was Lord but to make decisive claims about who Jesus is and what he can do for people Lord, we love you and we thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.